Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. It's March 23rd, 2021. Today's show is Riding Radicals. Our opening song is Bella Ciao, an Italian folk song that originated in the late 19th century, sung in protest of the harsh working conditions in the paddy fields of North Italy, and then modified and adopted as an anthem of the anti-fascist resistance by the Italian partisans between 1943 and 1945 against the Nazi German forces occupying Italy. It's performed here by the Danish rock band Savage Rose, off of their 2001 album Il Afriu, or Fire and Freedom. Tonight's show is a somewhat altered version of a program that first aired on November 3, 2015, called Tracking Subversives, with the noted scholar of the literary left, Alan Wald. According to Wald, the aim of the literary radical is to endow history with meaning. Wald has published a trilogy of books brought out by the University of North Carolina Press comprised of Exiles from a Future Time, The Forging of the Mid-20th Century Literary Left, Trinity of Passion, The Literary Left and the Anti-Fascist Crusade, and most recently, American Night, The Literary Left in the Era of the Cold War. Though hundreds of radicals are detailed in Wald's books, we'll focus on just three. Communist Party polemicist Mike Gold, African-American novelist Anne Petrie, and radical poet Thomas McGrath. Mike Gold was a communist, novelist, and literary critic. His semi-autobiographical novel, Jews Without Money, from 1930, was a bestseller. During the 30s and 40s, Gold was considered the preeminent author and editor of U.S. proletarian literature. Anne Petrie was an American novelist who became the first black woman writer with book sales topping a million copies for her novel, The Street. But Wald declares The Narrows her masterpiece, on a level with Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Thomas McGrath was a celebrated American poet. McGrath produced a prolific array of titles in several genres, but he's best known for his long poem, Letter to an Imaginary Friend, published in sections between 1957 and 1985, and as a single poem in 1997 by Copper Canyon Press. He was very open about his communist politics, and he was actually quite dogmatic, considering himself to the left of the popular front. Alan M. Wald is the Emeritus H. Chandler Davis Collegiate Professor of English Literature and American Culture at the University of Michigan. In addition to his Literary Left trilogy, he's the author of several other books, including Writing from the Left and The Responsibility of Intellectuals. And now, Writing Radicals on the literary left in the 20th century on Interchange on WFHB. Well, the literary left goes back uh, early into, uh, you know, in, into American history. The U.S. literary left 
It's generally said to begin uh, around the middle of the 19th century with abolitionists, early feminists, um, radical labor movement, early free love uh, 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 advocates, and so on. Um, in the beginning of the 20th century, it takes a new cast with the appearance of the labor movement uh, following the urbanization of American society, development of trade unions, the international labor movement. And by the time of uh, World War I, of course, it's sort of transformed into an international movement that has international politics because of the whole problem of World War I, the, the attempt of the left to prevent World War I, the capitulation of sections of the left supporting World War I, the aftermath of the war, the 20s, and so on. So the, the literary left was sort of transformed by the events of the 20th century. And probably it was the Russian Revolution that was, was the, the most significant uh, for at least the mid-20th century because uh, radicals have been looking for an alternative. Here was a massive uprising led by people who seem to have similar ideas. Surely the early years of the Russian Revolution were filled with incredible artistic innovation, experiments, uh, transformation of cultural life. As you know, homosexuality was legalized, abortion was legalized, um, gender relationships transformed. Uh, there was a tremendous anti-racism, anti-colonialism, internationalism of the early communist movement. This inspired the um, you know, majority of the world literary left. And uh, unfortunately, as time went on, like many revolutions, the Russian Revolution degenerated and eventually into a terrible totalitarian dictatorship. Um, and of course, the whole left, the story of the left is caught up in that um, set of tragic events. Um, although many positive things have still come, came out of it, and it shouldn't be completely written off, but the negative lessons can't be forgotten either. Um, so then comes, of course, World War II, which is another set of challenges, the Cold War, um, and what appears to be the decimation of the left in the 1950s, except within just a couple of years, there's the resurgence of a new left, um, starting with the civil rights movement, the student movement, and so on. And the left takes on a, a new life, which involves sort of a carryover of the older traditions and yet new, new and unfamiliar kinds of uh, writing and cultural activity, in which I don't actually specialize. My, my period of expertise is really the, the, the old left and its afterlife, uh, which goes into the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could focus on your titles real quickly, too. It kind of gives us a sense of that, that um, overarching theme that you just uh, described there, too, about... Uh, the course and the uh, the maybe the as you said the decimation as well of of these these particular um, hopeful utopian perspectives that seem to not be utopian it seemed to be actually coming true and 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 being realized in in real time so let's look at the titles quickly um, and maybe give us a sense of why you chose these titles the first one exiles from a future time the forging of the mid 20th century literary left so exiles from a future time you know wh what exactly does that mean well I, I chose the titles to capture what I call lead motifs of the left. So there's a lot of overlapping and intermixing, but I thought there were some dominant themes that could be captured in these titles and, and the kind of people I focus on in each volume. So the first one has to do with the forging of the left in the early 1930s. Um, and it's before the really horrible practical problems of fighting fascism and um, the disillusionment in the Soviet Union and so on sets in. It's when the ideals are highest. And the early, the sort of focal group uh, for that first volume are the uh, writers and poets um, around Dynamo magazine, 
which was an avant-garde experimental magazine featuring some famous people like Muriel Rukeyser and Kenneth Fearing, but a lot of very interesting ones who've been forgotten, particularly Saul Fernaroff and uh, Alfred Hayes and Ben Maddow and so on. I talk about a lot of other people, but in a way it's that group I'm thinking of when I use the title Exiles for a Future Time, where they projected a vision, and it was a utopian vision, although, as you say, it seemed like maybe it was coming true in the Soviet Union, at least in the early 30s. Um, and uh, so that's the, you know, the central idea that I was trying to capture. Mm. Into the second one is Trinity of Passion, the Literary Left, and the Anti-Fascist Crusade. That, that shifts into the period of the uh, Spanish Civil War. Um, uh, well, I guess it's, it starts with the triumph of Hitler in Germany in 1933, but it kind of focuses on a Spanish Civil War, which was seen by the world left as an attempt to stop fascism and maybe stop the what looked like was a coming world war. Um, as you know, Franco rose up against a democratically elected uh, Republican government in Spain and was backed by Hitler and Mussolini, who were trying out all their weapons uh, in Spain. And the West uh, did nothing to help the Spanish Republic. And so an international army of volunteers largely but not exclusively communist and very heavily Jewish poured into Spain young young men and some women you know 18 19 years old with no military experience 3000 of them from the United States you know left their passports in France and walked across the Pyrenees into Spain and were quickly trained and went to battle against the uh, terrible weapons that the fascists had 2000 of them were killed uh, this was a big big moment in the development of the left, of a brutal struggle against fascism. So the kind of idealism of that utopian moment became very hardened of necessity in this battle to stop fascism, which then bled into the Second World War. And as you know, the left, the communist movement, played a big role in the war effort, and then Soviet Union played a big role in defeating Nazi Germany. And the third one, American Night, which uh, again sa- sounds like it's closing the door, the literary left in the era of the Cold War. Yeah, so this is a crucial moment and uh, <laughs> some similarity to the present moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, following World War II, uh, there was a great hope for a uh, resurgence of the left. Soldiers returned from fighting fascism abroad to democratize the United States to end racism here. Uh, and it was a uh, upsurge in the labor movement. There was a gigantic strike wave, probably the biggest strike wave in American history in uh, 1946 following the war. Several cities were taken over with general strikes, and it was a great optimism about social change, which ended very quickly with the advent of the Cold War and the announcement of the Iron Curtain, and then the kind of breakup of the coalition of liberals and the communist-led left. And by uh, 1947, the you know Cold War was underway. Hearings were going on in Hollywood, which was sort of a precursor to the general later McCarthyite hearings. Um, of course, this all began before McCarthy under the Truman administration, and progressively the um, left was largely crushed and then underwent its own implosion in 1956 with the Khrushchev revelations. This was just a couple of years before a big resurgence in the late 1950s, starting with the civil rights movement. So people who gave up hope and, uh, in this, and in despair were a little bit premature because new possibilities were in the offing. It didn't really take long for those to be dashed as well, though, it seems like. Well, the hopes of the 1960s, yeah. really well, in, and into the 1970s. Um, <laughs> it's true, there were hard times in the 80s and 90s, but there were things like the overthrow of apartheid in South mm-hmm. Africa. That was pretty big. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess um, partly I, I, I stick provincial, I suppose, when I think about uh, the, the quick turn and backlash against the 60s in the States. Yes, there was. There 
was a big backlash to the upsurge of the 60s, which which might have been expected. But at the same time, things happened internationally. The, the Nicaraguan Revolution showed the possibility for for social change and some kind of hope. Um, and there were things throughout the even the Arab Spring, although we can say now that it looks like it ended kind of badly. These things keep keep breaking out. Right. So you can never think that it's, you know, it's all done and over with, and that there's always some similarity. It's not like these things are completely formed. Mm-hmm. They have some historical connection. There's a pattern, it seems. Hmm. Come all of you good workers, good news to you I'll tell of how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Support for WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. You can explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post. Writers with a voice. Photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepost.com. They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Oh, workers, can you stand it? Oh, tell me how you can. This is Doug Storm for Interchange on WFHB. We're listening to Which Side Are You On? by Woody Guthrie. Our show is Writing Radicals with author Alan Wald, whose Literary Left Trilogy investigates aspects of intellectual, literary, and cultural movements and figures associated with left-wing politics, beginning in the early 20th century and continuing into our own time. In this segment, we focus on Communist Party polemicist Mike Gold. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Let's go ahead and start with our, our um, three authors that uh, that we've chosen to to look at, and we can look at others, obviously, in and around these. But uh, we've chosen to focus on, uh, as I said before, Mike Gold, uh, Anne Petrie, and Thomas McGrath. Uh, Mike Gold shows up primarily in that first book, Exiles from a Future Time. So let's just start at the beginning, then. Who who is Mike Gold? Well, Mike Gold was born uh, Irwin Greenwich, a poor Jewish family in New York. And he is really a figure who sort of starts before the communist movement, even though he's most famously identified, actually somewhat misidentified with proletarian literature. Uh, He wrote a well-known book in the early 30s called Jews Without Money, which had an international impact, and it's it's still in print, still widely discussed. Uh, Gold was very much a figure of the um, culture movement that sort of preceded the hardening of the communist movement. Uh, He he wrote uh, very experimental plays in the 1920s. He was part of the most avant-garde circles. He traveled to the Soviet Union. He was friends with Meyerhold, the avant-garde Russian theater director. He was friends with Mayakovsky, the avant-garde poet, and so on. Uh, And in the early 30s, he did write this book, Jews Without Money, which is not actually a proletarian novel. It deals with um, gangsters, and it deals with uh, sort of lower-middle-class people, and so on. It doesn't have really very many workers or strikes or anything like that. But because he had advocated the proletarian literature, it's seen as a 
that's a classic of a genre that it's not really <laughs> technically a part of. And he became kind of a symbol for the revolutionary artist in the United States and around the world. But after the early 30s, he mostly became a journalist, writing columns for the communist press, especially the Daily Worker. He had a very popular column in that. He wrote many columns for the literary magazine New Masses. He wrote a few more plays and stories, but his reputation is really 20s and 30s. So he was, as you note, uh, very well known, uh, a kind of star throughout the 20s, right? Uh, and uh, Jews Without Money seemed to be almost a capstone for that particular phase. Yes, he was a personality in the 20s with some plays that got some attention, but he was not as big as Max Eastman or John Dos Passos. Mm. Max Eastman, uh, Floyd Dell, and John Reed were some of his influences or heroes? Yes, he was connected with them all, uh, you know, younger than most of those. Can you give us a, a, a little capsule of each of those? Max Eastman, I think people might know, but I think Floyd Dell probably isn't that well known. John Reed, of course, we know John Reed Clubs, but I don't know that anybody necessarily knows who these men are today. Starting in that pre-World War I period, they were influenced, first of all, by the Debsian Socialist Movement and the industrial workers of the world, the IWW, sometimes called the Wobblies, mm-hmm. which, which still exists, a sort of American syndicalist uh, union movement, and very, very militant. So John Reed was primarily a journalist who covered the Mexican Revolution and then the Russian Revolution. And in that period, he became a, a, a communist and a founding member of the American Communist Party, but he also ended up working for the um, international communist movement, and he actually died while he uh, was on a mission uh, <clears throat> to, the, um, to Baku. He caught typhus mm. uh, and is buried in the Kremlin. If you've seen the movie Red starring Warren Beatty as John Reed, you get a pretty, pretty accurate picture of his story. Mm. Uh, Max Eastman and Dell are also in that movie, not quite as prominent. Uh, they were associated with a magazine called The Masses, which started before World War I, was banned during the war because of its opposition to the war and support of the Russian Revolution, and was succeeded by a journal called The Liberator. And later on, The New Masses was founded to kind of honor the old masses. Uh, but by that time, Eastman had become a, uh, a critic of the communist movement, a critic from the left at first. And uh, Dell, to some extent, with the same course, although later on Eastman would become very right-wing and Dell would not. The essay that uh, that uh, Mike Gold wrote that kind of pushed the proletarian art forward was called Towards a Proletarian Art. It appeared in 1921. What point was it trying to make? Well, it's, I mean, it's an interesting text. It's, it's not really proletarian literature as we uh, later come to think of it. It's a kind of emotional, mystical celebration of working class uh, experiences as the source of, of true art, um, but he didn't. It wasn't, um, you know, it was kind of a manifesto in a sense of an avant-garde, you know, movement. And in many ways, communism is an avant-garde movement, and, and in culture, it was as, as well. So this is very early twenties. Uh, later on, there's um, talk of proletarian literature and socialist realism and so on, which is which is of, of a different character and and more involves political judgments of writers. Yeah. Uh, whereas he's talking about a kind of emotional, mystical experience. I believe he invokes Walt Whitman in that sees Walt Whitman as a proletarian writer. So it's a much broader more amorphous uh, approach to working-class culture. Uh, you get a sense that Gold is working uh, at some period to kind of attack some of the, what we now again call canonical writers, like Faulkner or Hemingway or Wilder, Archibald MacLeish as well, in, in some of his, I guess, literary journalism or literary criticism. He has a complicated approach to that. He has a great respect 
toward the classic writers. You know, all these communists worship Shakespeare, and of course, Shakespeare was worshipped in the in the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, and a respect for the achievements of uh, modern realist writers, naturalist writers, and so on. Um, but when it came to politics, uh, their judgments were really harsh and and condemnatory of of any writer who took political positions he didn't like. Um, it was still possible for him to say positive things about their art, but I, I mean, a good example might be Dos Passos. When Dos Passos was very pro-communist, Dos Passos was not completely a communist. He had many anarchist aspects, but he was sympathetic to the political orientation of the communist movement uh, up until the around 1934. Um, Gold was very sympathetic to his writing, but the minute uh, Dos Passos' political views changed, then, of course, Dos Passos became a terrible writer. Hmm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Alan Wald, and our show is Writing Radicals. We're focusing on three 20th century writers on the literary left. Polemicist Mike Gold, novelist, and Petrie and poet Thomas McGrath. These conversations sort of get lost in, uh, for me, in the time frame. I, I, you're talking about Faulkner and Hemingway. Also, uh, this is the time uh, where uh, Eliot publishes Proofrock. Wasteland is around the corner or in that 20s as well. Williams is writing Spring and All. Again, I'm just sort of trying to note what, what we sort of have handed down through our culture, our, our college culture, our, our academic culture, these great writers of the 20th century, although it took Williams a while to become one of those. But uh, in, in 23, Williams is writing kind of a manifesto himself in Spring and also he's he's in that that space as well uh mike gold are trying to sort of ne- negotiate politics and literature uh where it doesn't seem like the others are necessarily trying to do those two things at once well each of these people is pretty complicated uh, williams on the one hand uh had a very working class sensibility um, in the 1930s was more or less part of the you know kind of proletarian movement and and generally sympathetic to the left and to communism and yet he also had some really harsh uh, uh views about people like T.S. Eliot I think he considered T.S. Eliot a complete and total fraud if I recall correctly um and I think uh that was generally the, the left-wing attitude, except for the people influenced by Trotskyism, who had a much more open attitude and saw Eliot as a sort of a vanguard in artistic sensibility, the way that Marx and Lenin were a vanguard in political sensibility. It's, it's hard to put these people into uh, consistent boxes. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about Trotskyism then also. Uh, I, I know that at one point, or I'm not sure if this is the uh, consistent with Gold, but uh, at some point he clearly hates the Trotskyites. Well, he pretty much followed the communist approach. In the 1920s, uh, in the early 20s, he very much admired Trotsky. And uh, at the time that Trotsky began to develop a criticism from the left in the mid-20s of the uh, sort of the burgeoning Stalinist bureaucratic takeover of the communist movement, Gold was kind of neutral. He, there are things in his letters, I think I quote some of them in the, in the books there, where he says, well, you know, this is just temporary. Pretty soon he'll give Trotsky a big job and he'll be back in power and stuff like that. But by the 1930s, the Trotsky has become seen as the um, the epitome of, uh, of, of evil in terms of critiquing the communist movement from the left. They could deal with people critiquing the communist movement from the right or even from a liberal position. They had all the arguments for that. But people who were also radicals, also anti-capitalist and anti-racist and anti-imperialist, who um, pointed out the 
brutalities of the Stalinist system and, and some of the erroneous policies that flowed from that were seen as, the, as a major threat, despite the fact that they were relatively small. Uh, these ideas in the United States especially did attract uh, quite a few impressive intellectuals who um, were drawn to magazines, particularly Partisan Review, but also Modern Monthly and a few other publications. Um, and though, though they were small, their ideas did have an impact uh, later on, many of these same people would become less radical, you know, blend into the mainstream and carry over some of their ideas and new forms to that. It's a complicated development, but pretty important to understand. So uh, Gold primarily, though, loyal to the, the party, really, even after the, the revelations uh, that Khrushchev uh, reveals. To the end of his life, as far as I can tell, Gold was um, completely a believer in the communist movement and, and the myths of the Soviet Union and Stalin and so on. I don't, I don't think he ever relented on any of that. Is there a sense that it's a confusion with the, those institutions versus a practice of uh, communism? Or, you know, there's I guess there's a place where I get confused as, uh, as someone thinking about communism uh, with uh, an idea that sort of sticks in a place, a geography and a politics that isn't about necessarily... Uh, a way of living, but a way of politics. I mean, first of all, communism is something that preceded the uh, Russian Revolution. Right, right. Right, so it's a, it's a set of ideas about collective ownership, collective control. Workers should control the uh, means of production. They should control the industries that they work in. Um, there should be economic democracy. And, I mean, political democracy is great where everybody gets a vote, but that's vitiated by the fact that some people have vast amounts of wealth and can manipulate the media and, and, and buy politicians and so on. So it has to be an economic democracy as well. And so these are all basic ideas about communism, which are perfectly fine, moral, seem to be rather consistent with the uh, sort of basic Christianity and other other religions. But as this uh, becomes institutionalized through political parties and in the formation of states, they become transformed. Then communism becomes, in some cases, uh, an ideology just used to justify and rationalize um, authoritarian control. That happens in, on the level of parties and in states as well. So for Mike Gold, would you say that Jews Without Money is uh, is his legacy to us? Well, I suppose in terms of, uh, you know, a single literary text, which was widely read and influential and needs to be studied, I suppose that's the major thing. But some of those plays of the 1920s are quite fascinating, and some of those poems are, are um, very revealing about the left culture and the politics of the time and have a fair amount of artistic craft and so on. So it's not all of my goal, but it's certainly what people remember him most for. So let's turn to our uh, second author, which is Anne Petrie. And Anne Petrie does a little bit of extra work for us as she spans two books. Um, there's a chapter on uh, her novel, The Street, in the in the book Trinity of Passion, and then a chapter on her novel, The Narrows, in the final book, American Night. So Anne Petrie was born in 1908 and died in 1997. She was an American novelist who became the first black woman writer with book sales topping a million copies for her novel, uh, The Street. So that's pretty popular. Popular, huh? Yes. Part of the problem with Anne Petrie is she's best known for the street that's widely admired, and there are a lot of studies of it. In the course of the study, I actually came to believe that The Narrows was by far superior and really a masterpiece of the 1950s on a level with, let's say, Ellison's Invisible Man. And so I had to make my case for that in a, you know, in a separate volume with separate evidence. So that's why I kind of have her divided up. She's also very important for the study because, in, in some ways, she's more typical of the literary left than, than Mike Gold, in the sense that her communist identity was not public or known, and it's somewhat elusive. It's not clear whether or not she was a member of the Communist Party. She certainly had many friends who were communists and, uh, and studied Marxism and had 
politics that were identical with the communist movement for a number of years. And I believe in the Narrows, she's, which is set in the 1950s, she's kind of mourning the loss of that whole upsurge of anti-racist radicalism that the communist movement was involved in. But she's mysterious about it. And, you know, part of it, I suppose, is a fear of political repression, and part of it, I think, is their unusual personality. Uh, if you read the few interviews that exist with her, she's not very forthcoming at all about her personal life, except she's proud of her family history in terms of her parents, and uh, they're, they're, they were pharmacologists in New England. Um, but she doesn't reveal much about her marriage or her, uh, her, her intimate life and her friends and so on. So she's a complicated person. But the truth is a lot of writers drawn to the left were like that. They, they were not open communists like Mike Gold. They were maybe not members of the party, but they had friends or relatives or whatever. They uh, you know, were in the milieu and profoundly influenced by it, emotionally influenced by it, mostly uplifted by it for a certain period. Um, but it's amorphous. And because McCarthyism plays such a great emphasis on demonizing communists and focusing on membership and party cards and so on, most of these people are sort of not even known for their actual political sentiments. And I think that's the case with Petrie. Good Lord, good Lord, send me an angel down. And Spanish angel will spare your cheese and brown. That new, well-loving... Swear to God, it must be best. All these Georgia women won't let Willie Mac tear rest. There was a crowd down on the corner, and I wondered who could it be. Wanna thing but the women, boy, trying to get to me. This is Doug Storm for Interchange on WFHB. We're listening to Ticket Agent Blues by Blind Willie McTell. Our show is Writing Radicals with author Alan Wald, whose Literary Left trilogy investigates aspects of intellectual, literary, and cultural movements and figures associated with left-wing politics, beginning in the early 20th century and continuing into our own time. We've been talking about the novelist Anne Petrie, whose best-known book is The Street. She's a long, tall mama, five and a half from the ground. She's a tailor-made mama and she ain't no hand-me-down. Tell the truth. Mama, if you ride to Southern, I ride to Sandy Beach. When you get in Memphis, pretty mama, look around for me. Maybe I will. You can't never tell what you double-crossing women will do. They'll tip out with your buddy and come home and play sick on you. I won't. Now, you, uh, you mentioned her parents were pharmacologists. Ann Petrie also took a degree in, in pharmacology, right? Yes, she did. She did have those skills. And she has. She wrote a lot of children's stories and other things that, you know, uh, set in <laughs> drugstores. She has a story called The Drugstore Cat and so on. Mm. Uh, so it, it does appear in various episodes of her novels and, and short fiction. I should say she, she was a short story writer, and some of the short stories are stellar as well. Now, she appears in the chapter A Rage in Harlem, and it's here uh, you begin, or it seems to be, you really sort of take uh, charge or, or to delve into communism in the African-American community as well. Is, is that the way that we can sort of see Anne Petrie within this framework of your book? She's, she helps to highlight this particular culture or the, the tendencies of, of the, the communist movement, uh, as you said before, anti-racist, but how that shifts over time as well due to having to fight fascism from within also. 
the communist movement, especially starting in the 1930s, was a magnet for African-American writers and artists, many, many more than the famous ones who publicly identified as communists, such as Richard Wright. I mean, very clearly, a figure like Paul Robeson, who may not have technically been a member of the Communist Party, had communist politics uh, throughout most of his life. Uh, W.E. Du Bois was very close to the communist movement starting in the late 40s and eventually joined just before he left the United States for Ghana. And dozens and dozens of major African-American artists and writers had this connection. And Petrie is part of that, and she knew all of those people. She, the, many of them were active in theater in the uh, late 30s and 40s, and Petrie did have a theater connection, not, not well known, but she did perform in, in some of the radical black plays. So she's part of that milieu. But, but one thing about Petrie is it also shows the diversity of style and so on. Her um, novels are not particularly seen as either radical or communist because she does not have a positive figure who represents the black proletarian or the heroic figure, as you might say, see in Richard Wright's um, stories, Uncle Tom's Children, or in John Oliver Killen's uh, great novel, Young Blood, and so on. It's kind of the absence of the left alternative that sets the framework for the street and the narrows. So in the streets set in Harlem during World War II, there just simply is no left, and all the all the terrible things that happen in the novel are the consequences of not having that alternative, even though she herself at that very moment was very much involved in left-wing activities in a, in a pro-communist newspaper, uh, working with Adam Clayton Powell, who had a certain kind of relationship with the communist movement at that point. Um, and later on in The Narrows, which... Um, it's about 10 years later, or maybe eight years later. Again, it's an absence of any kind of left alternative that creates the, the crisis and the tragedy of the lives of the characters. There are vestiges of the radical 30s left over in one or two of the characters, but generally she's, she's mourning an absence. Uh, you note that she has a strong identification with Joe March of uh, Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. Is she a Joe March character in any of, of, any of these books? In some of the short stories, I think you get that, that sense. I don't see it in the in the novels myself. Uh, she's a very just a very complicated, imaginative person. I don't mean to reduce her work at all to a you know a political tract or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Politics in it, but we're talking about politics in a way that you know Herman Melville's Billy Budd is political. Uh, you know, kind of on a grand scale, political sensibility. Um, so. You know, she uh, is. She's definitely diffused as a personality in many characters in her books, but I don't actually in these two particular ones. I don't think there's one that really represents her. I mean, I think some people have tried to see the main character in the street as possibly based on her and so on. But really, I think she's writing about people who d didn't have the benefit of the political consciousness that she has. Mm. Her characters just don't see what she saw. And you can document what she saw, not so much by anything she ever reveals in her interviews, but simply by going back and looking at what she did. There's a record of her political activities in various newspapers and so on. Let's uh, let's do a little bit of thinking about the two novels. You you do you do a quite a bit of work on them in the in the books too. So the first, let's look at the one is called the Street uh, and one is called the Narrows. The titles certainly seem to resonate with each other. They're definitely spatial. Yeah. So the Street is a concrete place, you know, in Harlem, and the Narrows is uh, you know a, sort of a passageway in between, a kind of vaguer uh, situation. Uh, so there's a, there is a spatial aspect to her books that's pretty important. Mm -hmm. Well, as I point out, the Narrows, the characters, and, and 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 some of the setting are actually transposed from Harlem over into this small Connecticut town where you know these this this kind of huge vibrant black community was unlikely to have existed. 
so she's, she is mixed. She is taking some of her New York experiences and putting them in a small New England town. And she's from Connecticut also, right? She was from Connecticut. And in 1946, at the start of the Cold War, uh, she went back to Connecticut and she wrote the Narrows uh, from Connecticut, although she made trips into New York City during that time to see her writing teachers at Columbia University. There's a little bit of um, a discussion in the book, too, about this idea of uh, using art as a weapon, and you talk about Petrie trying to define herself against that space, perhaps. Uh, she writes her own essay called The Novel of Social Criticism that, that might dig into this space as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's a big subject in a literary culture. Most writers have have seen their art as an instrument of, of influence. Now, whether they mean short-term immediate influence, like Upton Sinclair to, you know, change the uh, meatpacking industry, or whether they mean long-term moral reform, like Tolstoy and so on, that's, you know, that's another question. But influence is definitely one reason why writers, most of them, write. Um, so the, the question has always been how you judge a novel's influence and whether you look at the longer-term purposes or you judge it by some immediate goal. Generally, uh, the communist left, in terms of the people who were writing the reviews for the press and so on, tended to influence more the immediate short-term aspects of how a book might help a particular struggle at that moment. And some writers kind of went along with that, but most of them preferred to think of their books in terms of a longer-term social influence. Mm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Alan Wald, and our show is Writing Radicals. We're focusing on three 20th century writers on the literary left, polemicist Mike Gold, novelist, and Petrie and poet Thomas McGrath. Now, you write, too, about the, the street sort of being an answer to um, what seems a propaganda about uh, the riots that happened in the 40s, the Harlem riot in particular, uh, that the street uh, sort of negates the assertion of the fact that the riots were caused by provocateurs and not social conditions. Yeah, that's a good example of this conflict. Uh, the communist movement, like uh, American liberalism and, and most of the United States you know, during World War II, wanted national unity, wanted to believe that things were getting better in the United States. And when rebellions would break out in cities, as they did in Los Angeles, Detroit, New York, and so on during the war, they would look for some other excuse rather than you know, looking to the problems of American racism against Latinos in Los Angeles or against African Americans in Detroit and New York and several other cities. And the communist movement was probably the most fanatic and trying to find some excuse for these rebellions being provoked by racists and, and uh, not really showing some deep flaw in the American system. And uh, generally, uh, African Americans in the communist movement tended to go along with this point of view and to, uh, and to look for outside forces. And there were several novels written, uh, particularly one called The White Face, by a friend of Anne Petrie, uh, and also uh, a novel by Benjamin Pell said in, in Harlem, uh, which gave the viewpoint that these the Harlem uh, riots, the rebellions, were uh, instigated by outside agitators. Uh, but Petrie wrote the facts. I mean, her story of the causes of the Harlem riot are, I think, pretty much uh, confirmed by all the research that's been done since. So even though she was part of the left movement and, the, and part of the communist movement, she was able in her art to pretty much give an accurate version. Uh, are those her only two novels, then, The Street and The Narrows? No, she has a third novel called Country Place. Mm. Does that come after, then? 
that's in the middle, and there's some question. Is it published in the middle? Now, whether she had already begun the Narrows or whether that's an outtake from the street and so on, there's some debate about that. Okay. It's a middle novel that has not gotten much attention. A few people think highly of it, but generally it's not considered an important book, and I don't think it's been reprinted. So The Narrows published in 1953. Again, you mentioned Ralph Allison, Invisible Man, published in 1952. Is there a relationship at all to how each of these uh, authors view their communities? They're really very different projects. I mean, the you know, Invisible Man tra- is sort of a semi-autobiographical novel, uh, you know, tracing the, a character who comes from Kansas City and is educated in the South at a university that looks like Tuskegee and then comes north is involved in the communist movement, pretty much following out Ellison's own life, whereas Aneros is basically set in a small town in New England involving a family in the early 50s with some flashbacks to the adoption of the child and so on. So they're, you know, one set in in just one small town, the other set in sort of the whole, many different regions. They're really quite different. Um, politically, um, it's complicated because Ellison's novel was changed so much by the editors, as, as has been documented mm. in, in different books. So there were many, many important chapters were removed that might make the original text look quite different than the one we've inherited today. But it's generally taken as a rejection, complete rejection of the whole communist experience and collectivism in favor of individual solutions and sort of individual negotiations of a sort of a separate peace with American society. Um, and Petrie's doesn't really get into that. It's more of this mourning for what could have been an almost fatalistic, deterministic view of, you know, of the uh, kind of a view of stasis in the 1950s with no clear you know, evidence of how things can turn out. You mentioned several things in there, too, that seem to, to work in, in that that space of mourning also. And, I, and you, you make note in your books, too, that Freud's mourning and melancholia is was kind of a, a touchstone for modernist literature in the fi- uh, 50s. Uh, why so? Well, uh, of course, the idea really goes back to Freud's arguments, which grew out of World War One and the uh, loss of life there. But there's a massive... Uh, loss in World War II, uh, you know, especially especially in, in Europe. And then as more and more information comes out about what went on in Hiroshima and the death camps and so on, there's kind of a gloominess uh, that so sets over, which is coterminous with the um, decline of the, of the social movements and the transformation of the trade unions into something different from what they had been, um, and the kind of remaking of American culture. So these people who were uplifted and transformed by their uh, the experience of the social movements of the 30s, and even though kind of the World War II sense of unity and so on, uh, feel this great sense of loss and uh, and a kind of obsessive remembrance of it and fixating on it. It seems to be a pretty uh, pretty strong emphasis on the same-sex relationships in the novel as well. Yeah, that's one of the astonishing things about Petrie. She's very uh, gender-conscious in the street, but in, um, uh, in the Narrows, it's clear that she has a completely uh, kind of mostly enlightened view about gender relationships uh, for the you know for the 1950s. Although there are some depictions of male homosexuality, which fit more into the conventional stereotypes, but she definitely is creating new kinds of families, particularly involving uh, male couples and female couples that uh, would, you know, would seem to be very uh, uh, uncharacteristic of that time. Why do you think that uh, the Narrows wasn't piggybacked in some way with the way that the street has been so popular? Originally, the, I mean, the, the narrow uh, the street also had a, an odd reputation where it was very successful and was published. Then it kind of disappeared, 
and it was reprinted uh, 20, 30 years later at the time of the interest in black women's literature with Toni Morrison and Alice Walker and mm-hmm. so on, the, the uh, revival of Zora Neale Hurston, and it had a kind of a second life, and that's when it became a classic. Why, did, uh, why was that picked up over the Narrows? I think the Narrows is a much more challenging book. On the one hand, it looks like a pulp novel in terms of the interracial sex theme and the way, and the, way the co- original cover, covers were and, and the violence and so on, but the style is highly modernistic, where it's um, it's uh, sort of stream of consciousness moving quickly from character to character, um, and and events sort of uh, are repeated and, and recur in new new contexts. It looks like it would be an easy read, but it's really quite demanding to fully understand. Hmm. Does it seem like something I should try to uh, buy the rights to and write a script for? <laughs> uh, I don't know whether it could become a, a film. Although probably somebody today could make a, a very advanced uh, film out of it. Well, I might think about that. Support for WFHB comes from Cardinal Spirits. Located at 922 South Morton Street, Cardinal Spirits is an Indiana craft distillery in Bloomington, making whiskey, gin, vodka, rum, and liqueurs. Hours and more information online at cardinalspirits.com. This is Doug Storm for Interchange on WFHB. We're listening to Blue Horizon by Sidney Bechet. Our show is Writing Radicals with author Alan Wald, whose Literary Left trilogy investigates aspects of intellectual, literary, and cultural movements and figures associated with left-wing politics, beginning in the early 20th century and continuing into our own time. For our final segment, we'll turn our attention to poet Thomas McGrath. You begin this section uh, uh, on the communist poet Thomas McGrath by placing him in uh, sort of contradistinction to another poet, a quite well-known poet at the time at least, uh, but not uh, canonical in the way McGrath seems to have become, or at least uh, is on the fringe of being a canonical poet. Uh, You compare him or uh, discuss him with uh, with Aaron Kramer. Can you begin by describing the world as shared by these two poets and their particular differences and their mode of making uh, art? Well, I think they represent two very strong elements in the communist-led left literary tradition, uh, although I don't want to say that, you know, the two of them sort of sum up all the different possibilities. But on the one hand, you have, and, and they don't, they don't uh, fit, I think, a lot of the conventional ideas. I mean, McGrath was kind of a wild man, modernist by, temper, by temperament, highly experimental, very open to being influenced by uh, Pound, Eliot, he studied with uh, some of the Southern agrarian new critic types in the South and so on. He was a heavy drinker, rode a motorcycle, wore a black leather jacket, many wives, you know, and so on. He was very open about his communist politics, was fired from his teaching job on the West Coast and so on. But politically, uh, he was actually quite <laughs> uh, a dogmatic, hardline, uh, pro-Stalin person. He was even considered himself to the left of the popular front for period he was out of the communist movement and seemed to associate with Maoist groups and so on. 
politically, uh, he's somewhat mixed, but artistically, he's at a very high level. Although I should say that he can be sloppy. And if you look at different versions of his poems, it's hard to tell what might be typos and what are <laughs> actual experiments and so on. But definitely a, a genius there. Um, Kramer comes from sort of another element of the communist movement. His parents were communists, uh, Jewish communists in New York. Um, he grew up as a young communist. He published in the young communist publications and so on. He wrote what he saw as wor worker poetry with um, clear diction and rhymes and so, uh, you know, sort of heroic themes and so on. But he was extremely skillful, very smart, innovative w within that framework was quite prolific in the communist press up until the early 1950s when he became uh, politically disillusioned in a way that McGrath didn't become disillusioned. He be, uh, Kramer became disillusioned with Stalin and Stalinism. Uh, because his family was in a communist movement, he would not ever openly attack it, but he withdrew uh, to the sidelines and stayed part of the left, uh, probably considers himself um, an independent revolutionary. Uh, he had a very stable marital life, as far as I can tell, you know, raised a family, eventually got a teaching job in, um, in New York. But his reputation has always been confined to a small circle. He was big in communist circles in the 40s and early 50s, and somewhat on the left through the 60s, and then that kind of faded. Though he did continue to publish, and his style changed and became richer, and in some cases much more experimental toward the end. I like how that uh, in the in the first book with uh, Mike Gold, you have a quotation from, from Kramer also about Kramer sort of being starstruck by Gold. Yes, he worshipped Gold, uh, uh, as many communists uh, did, communist literary people in the, in the 30s, 40s. Gold was like a symbol of the heroic, especially the Jewish proletarian. Although, as I say, Gold wasn't really a proletarian. I mean, I didn't really ever have a job. <laughs> uh, but he, 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 you know, as a tough, he, he was he was a sort of a tough guy, uh, athletic and so on, uh, as the, you know, anti-fascist fighter and so on. Mm -hmm. That's probably a good enough uh, division there between McGrath and Kramer also. McGrath doesn't seem to hold uh, might not hold anyone up as someone to revere. I'm not sure you do mention that he he did seem interested in Gus Hall, who I don't know who, who Gus Hall is, So, but that was at late, later in his life. He didn't get the sense that he had heroes of that sort. I think that uh, McGrath had a lot of working-class heroes going back to his youth. He mm -hmm. was very influenced by uh, strikes that he witnessed in his youth. He was very influenced by uh, people on the long shore in New York, where he spent uh, time before he went into the military and so on, uh, collaborating and putting out a publication of uh, dissident longshoremen in New York. He was, he, these people are heroes that appear in his poetry, Letter to an Imaginary Friend. So there are a lot of working-class heroes. As for literary heroes, I just think he read very widely. I don't think there was any particular one. I think he just, he just read widely, absorbed widely. He was a true, a true poet of a modernist temperament and personality blended in with these sort of... Um, uh, simple-minded uh, pro-Stalin ideas. Well, you did. Uh, you do mention in the book uh, at one point you say he immersed himself in militant labor activities, and I think you just sort of uh, alluded to some of those things. He did seem to have quite a, a, a noirish existence himself, perhaps. Yes, also kind of beatnik too. But I think mm. that uh, a lot of um, individual rebellion, a, a lot of problems with alcohol, personal relations, things like that. I should say I met him in person and interviewed him, and he was a lovely guy. I mean, I'm not. This is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do. You do seem to like him. I mean, in terms of the book, you, you're, you certainly praise him highly as a poet. Yes. So, but you say also that he has some, um, poetically, he's against sort of Whitman's perspective, and you, you point out that he thinks um, that William Carlos Williams, Williams goes wrong with the red wheelbarrow as well. Where, where does his aesthetic lie? 
I think he very much identifies with Pablo Neruda. I mean, you know, you have to remember that outside the U.S., there are all these sort of avant-garde, modernist, communist figures uh, that it's just sort of accepted. Yeah, they can be communists and yet brilliant poets and modernist artists. And so in the United States, that's seen as like an impossible position. So Brecht, Neruda uh, would be the kinds of uh, writers that he would strongly identify with. But it's true. He's one of the few uh, pro-communist writers who um, didn't think much of Whitman, who was sort of a cult figure, along with Shakespeare and the communist left. There's um, a movie that I actually, it's on YouTube right now, actually, the movie At the End of the World. Uh, It's kind of a a documentary piece uh, about Thomas McGrath. And in it, uh, he's interviewed and he says, uh, I think of... Letter to an imaginary friend. That's the the, the long work that you talked about earlier. As a rescue mission, I want to uh, rescue the past and then control it in order to do something about the future. Because if you don't know the past, you don't know that you can't. The future just becomes a matter of pragmatism, and that I think is the it's an American curse to begin with, and uh, very goddamn dangerous. I love that. That's great. I agree completely. Yeah. I mean, it's always a struggle over the past, how it's to be represented, and uh, many of us like to see it accurately represented. So I don't think of control in terms of, I mean, of manipulation or falsifying. Mm -hmm. But in order to wrest control from those people who would distort it, I think that's a worthy uh, objective. And it seems to me that his poetry, he's trying to memorialize memorialize certain uh, events and people and so on who have been forgotten. Uh, certain episodes of, of of the time period and so on, and he does it very well in Letter to Imaginary Friend. He does talk about that in the um, in this documentary also about the the how um, language has been stolen from us, and that you know one day we need to wake up and have have no language so we can start fresh. The dictionaries, three, you know, burn the dictionaries and burn those methods of control that are linguistic. Yeah. So this is these are this is an example of where he got, he says things that are completely seem to be incompatible with anybody else on the left or uh, certainly any kind of communist uh, thinking or whatever but that's the kind of, he had this sort of blend of different elements despite despite his, the fact that on on political questions he he was definitely a communist uh he was very much immersed in native american culture and certain kinds of mysticism he was a man of of world culture give us a little bit of a description of the, that long uh, long work then letter to an imaginary friend begun early in uh, 62 i think uh, and ended in, or maybe even earlier than that, 57, uh, ended in 85. It's in four volumes or at least four sections. Yeah, yeah. It was, he, he spread it out over, over many decades. Uh, some of it is completely incomprehensible, <laughs> some, but some of it are beautiful passages, quite quotable. Uh, so it spans over his life. It goes back to, to childhood scenes. Some of it is cryptic because you don't know exactly who he's talking about. He does resurrect these sort of heroes of a, uh, in a longshore union and the struggle against the gangsters and so on. There's many passages dealing with McCarthyism that are referring to his being uh, you know, fired from his academic position and, and having to, to go to work. Uh, uh, he worked as a craftsman and other things during that period. That's a masterpiece. Would you compare it to anything in particular? Well, I enjoy it more than The Prelude by Wordsworth. Mm. <laughs> uh, of, of its own period, uh, I think that Patterson, uh, the Williams' long piece, uh, do people compare it to that? I've never seen that done. It's mm. a, a possibility. I think Patterson is much, it's a different kind of poetry. Mm. It's uh, much more imagistic and, and lucid. 
Let me uh, ask you one final thing, uh, Alan, um, and I, it's actually sort of a, it'll be a reiteration for you, I suppose, but you got this question in a uh, 2006 interview with uh, Political Affairs, and I just wanted to ask it of you also now, too. The question was, there have been a number of recent attacks on academics on the left for opposing the Bush administration for being Marxists or whatever. Why do you think universities reflect such a sharp point of conflict? What are some ways to protect political freedom on campus? Campuses. That was in 2006. I'm not sure it hasn't gotten worse uh, since then, yes? Well, there's definitely a debate going on about academic freedom coming from many different directions. Uh, the sharpest debate are attacks on people who are critical of uh, Israeli policy regarding the Palestinian. Mm-hmm. That definitely, because we've, we've seen this attempt to take away tenure from this professor at University of Illinois named Stephen Salata on the basis of some, of some um, sort of childish tweets that he issued when he was angry during the war on Gaza, um, which, you know, he has the right to tweet whatever he wants to tweet and so on. Um, but there's an attempt to paint critics, sharp critics of the of Israeli state policy as being anti-Semitic. They're, you know, wealthy donors who then try to, you know, threaten to withdraw funding if something isn't done there. Um, and this is related to a new campaign against what they're calling civility. So if you say certain things, you're not being civil in certain ways, which is an ambiguous area. So this is the, 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 the fight at the present moment is focused on that. Um, there's a strong presence of Marxism on many universities, probably more in California and in the North and Northeast, probably more at the elite universities than the state universities. But there's, there's definitely a, a Marxist presence, especially, I think, in history departments and to some extent, literature departments. Are there any uh, writers now, writers on the left, that you would you would class with any of the ones that you you discuss in your books? Well, that's a bit tricky. <laughs> yeah, very present moment. Uh, you know, for example, Jonathan Jonathan Lentham uh, published this novel called Dissident Gardens, which is about communism, and it, it has. A, this is about two years ago. Somewhat of a bestseller. I I don't find it a very strong novel, but he's trying to do something with that tradition, and he's he's sort of in the uh, the vein of let's say E.L. Doctorow or some of the writers who treat communism not in an idealistic way, but as a more human kind of um, phenomenon. And it's sort of connected to that tradition. But and I think people consider it a radical novel. Maybe they consider him a radical. But it, there's something different about the present time that hasn't yet been theorized. There isn't a strong organization at the center. There isn't a clearer ideology. There aren't, uh, you know, social movements of the kind that sh- uh, that shape the left. Uh, you know, they're now so far in the past that it's it's hard to grip on things. So I think that there's a different kind of radical cultural movement out there, probably very much involved in the internet and so on. It's just, it's not the same kind of thing. There aren't the organizations that existed. There aren't the John Reed clubs. Uh, so it's a very different kind of phenomenon that has a relationship to the past, but it's um, quite different in many respects. I love those who labor I sing of the farmers and weavers and fishermen and miners as well now all you who hear me I pray you draw near me before you grow weary I'll sing of myself that's our show we'll close with song of myself off of the 1973 release Folkways record of contemporary songs written and performed by Ewan McCall and Peggy Seeger. Thanks to Alan Wald for his great trilogy of books on the literary left and for his deep knowledge about the period and the writers featured here, Mike Gold, Ann Petrie, and Thomas McGrath, authors we might learn a few things from as we continue to confront conservatism and reaction. 
You'll find the original extended version of today's show called Tracking Subversives on our website. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. I lived at my leisure. I lived before pleasure. And so, none the wiser to England I came. I thought it no danger to follow a stranger But with time changing a friend he became For the joys of a lover can equal no other Forever anew and yet always the same